Lava. This is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suisuki. Coming up, Micronesian leaders warn the US against further delays to federal funding. Also, so there will be days where I won't sleep. I'll just be going to my laptop and like check the extra notes. South Auckland students put their education on the back burner to help their families. And later... We all saw that there was a gap between our youth and our young adults, that they weren't as aware. Home is where the heart is for the group of Kiwi Borniweans who are preparing for their trip to the island. But first, a gale force winds, heavy rainfall and flooding has been forecast over the next 24 hours in parts of Cook Islands. A Category 1 cyclone is expected to make landfall overnight in Rarotonga. Cook Islands Emergency Management spokesperson Matt Blacker says outer islands could be hit harder. He says it's important to be aware, prepared and check the warnings. We have gale wind force warnings in place for southern Cook Islands and we have a coastal inundation warning in place. It is expected to strengthen to Category 1 before it impacts most of our island, but that's still at the, the lower end of the scale. Minor damage, perhaps disruption, I would say, more so than, than high-risk damage. We'll have more updates on our website at rnzi.com. Micronesian leaders have warned the United States against further delaying congressional approval for federal funding arrangements to their respective countries. An assigned letter to Washington dated 6 February, Serengorps Jr. of Palau, Hilda Haini of the Marshall Islands and Wesley Simena of Micronesia say delays to approving their compacts of free association has opened their countries up to economic exploitation by competing political actors in the Pacific. RNZ Pacific's Marshall Islands correspondent Giff Johnson says the countries had anticipated being able to access the funding late last year. He spoke with Caleb Fotheringham, who began by asking how big of a problem this was for the Micronesian nations. I think it's going to be a major issue for all three countries if the, if the new funding agreements uh, in, the, in the compacts for Palau, the FSM and the Marshall Islands are not approved by the Congress. And right now they're languishing in the midst of, of just the general dysfunction of the U.S. Congress and its inability to pass legislation. There doesn't seem to be any particular opposition to the compacts. It's just they haven't found a legislative vehicle that they can get it through on. And so, like, for now, the Marshall Islands, I mean, the Marshall Islands was forced by the U.S., at the end of last year to dip into its trust fund, right? The first country to have to dip into its trust fund, which it shouldn't be touching for another 20 years. And so that's a problem uh, long-term to do with the stability and the size of its trust fund in the future, but they got the money to use, right? So they're okay for now. Same with like the FSM and Palau. I mean, everybody's on ongoing, like, same-level funding from previous, but the fiscal year of the U.S. ends September 30, and uh, Palau actually is in a little bit different situation because it has a bunch of loans that are due, and it was counting on compact bump-up to manage its loan situation. So the longer it 
plays out in the U.S. Congress and doesn't get approved, yes, it's going to have financial repercussions on the islands. And I would say that's, you know, that that's something that everybody has got to be concerned with out here. When were the funding uh, arrangements meant to start coming in? Okay, so the the previous 20-year funding arrangement expired September 30 last year. And the hope had been that the, these would be approved in time so that it could simply be adopted by the Congress and it would be October 1 last year. Things would have just rolled into a new period. Now, despite the fact that Palau and the FSM signed off on their compacts back in May of last year, May, June, um, they were held up waiting for the marshals. The marshals, I mean, the marshals had legitimate issues with the U.S. The U.S. government has not come to the table on the nuclear legacy. It's taken a terrible policy toward the Marshall Islands on the nuclear legacy. And I hope people in the Pacific region understand this that the U.S. government is not playing ball with the Marshall Islands on its nuclear legacy. So there were a lot of things up in the air, and ultimately the Marshall Islands was pretty much backed into a corner and signed off in October uh, of the agreement. And, and that delay came with the penalty that they were forced to uh, dip into their trust fund. Instead of like FSM got a continuing resolution from the Congress, continuing resolution, meaning they just continued previous previous level funding uh, uh, in the new fiscal year to, to keep the island solvent. Um, and Palau actually is on a different schedule. Their compact officially doesn't expire until the end of this year. So they're still in getting funding. It's just that there were changes made in the new agreements that obviously increased the value, and so everybody was counting on this. So, again, the point being, the longer the Congress doesn't pass the compact legislation for these three North Pacific countries, uh, the more precarious their financial situations will become. Right. And you you sort of mentioned it before, but is it okay if you just explain what the U.S. is saying, um, why, why it's been delayed you mean why what why the, what's going on behind the delay yeah what's going on behind uh, the, the delay the, so i don't see for me i don't understand why they don't simply uh introduce the legislation as standalone legislation however i'm i am aware that there is this system in the u.s congress where when new money is required they have this requirement that you have to offset it, meaning you have to take away money from some other budget lines in order to accommodate the new spending, I guess, due to the fact that the U.S. government's debt is, you know, trillion dollars or whatever it is. So, so in the, they, they would need a couple billion dollars. The overall agreement with the three really associated states is U.S. 7.1 billion for 20 years, and apparently they need uh, about 2.3 billion offset to move this thing through, and they can't find the money to offset it. Well, you you know, like the U.S. government also agreed to the uh, Pacific U.S. Pacific Fisheries Treaty, 
which requires $60 million a year for 10 years, $600 million. Well, can it deliver on that? Well, it can't deliver on that unless the Congress approves it. You know, so there's a lot of this U.S. policy stuff where, you know, the U.S. says, well, we're really focused on the Pacific and we're doing things, but the Congress just can't pass legislation. Every day, over 15,000 high school students in New Zealand face the reality of putting their education on hold in order to feed their families. Students work 20 to 50, yes, 50, hours of paid work a week on top of study. The New Zealand Poverty Action Group released a report this week examining the extent of the issue, and it's calling for urgent support for students who they say are being robbed of their schooling due to the financial pressure. RNZ's Checkpoint reporter Louise Tenuth spoke to students at South Auckland's Otahuhu College on working extraordinarily long and often antisocial hours. It's nearly 2pm at Auckland's Otahuhu College. For most students, the end of the day is near. But for Year 13 student River, it's just getting started. At 4pm, she'll start her shift at the local KFC and she won't finish until 10 o'clock tonight. On weekends, she stays till closing time, 1am. That's about 40 hours a week on top of her schoolwork. I'm always so tired, like I'm exhausted when I come to school, but yeah, I want to come to school to graduate. And she's not alone. It's reported that over 15,000 students are working between 20 and 50 hours per week on top of study. Year 13 student Grace works 20 hours a week at McDonald's in Auckland Airport. When asked why they need to put in such big hours, the answer is the same for her and River. In our family we do struggle sometimes, so that motivation has helped me to um, push through work and school at the same time. My dad works like 12-hour shifts, seven days a week. I'm just another helping hand, just because I look after my younger sister, who's a year 12 at the school, driving her places, places she needs to be, and still, like, because dad's always busy at work and has other things to <laughs> Two years ago, Fui Fatu failed NCEA Level 1 after taking on multiple jobs often missing days of school to work or to recover from physically demanding jobs. He recalls studying through the night after working all day. So there'll be days where I won't sleep. I'll just be going to my laptop and I check the extra notes and I'll be studying, then take two hours of sleep and then repeat every, every time. Fuifatu says he needed to do this to ensure there was food in the family home. Since moving in with his sister, things have become a little easier. We were only able to afford just our rent and we only had like a little bit of money to buy groceries. So that's, and that's when I come in, so that way I can cover groceries. But ever since I moved with my sister, I was able to find out new alternatives. And thanks to school providing free lunches, I was, only, I was able to just provide for my family. Over at Aoriri College in nearby Papatoetoe, Principal Leanne Webb says students are also working night shifts. We were talking to one boy the other day who, who turned up to school at 10 o'clock and his shift had been 10 till 6. So he had gone home, tried to snatch a few hours sleep and then he'd come to school. 
She acknowledges it's not possible for students to work long hours and still function at school, but some just don't have a choice. In the end, families have to pay for the rent, they have to be able to buy food, they've got to pay for their bills. They're at school and they're trying to do this because they know that they need to get good qualifications, but they're caught in a hardship bind, yeah. Aurere College Year 13 students James and Aaron work three days a week at a logistics company. Their shifts begin at four o'clock in the morning and are supposed to finish at 8am but are often longer. The long days are difficult. Sometimes it's hard to focus but I just try. Things are getting, it was getting rough at home so I needed to help my family. Sometimes it feels bizarre. Probably rough. Just to know that just gonna wake up to the same day. Or really just try to make my family's life easier. Principal Leanne Webb says the government needs to step up if it's to prevent students failing to attain high school qualifications. She would like to see the student allowance currently offered to eligible tertiary students extended to high school students. Child Poverty Action Group is trying to draw attention to this issue, which has not been the subject of extensive research or government interventions. Its report points out that children over 16 are treated in household income stats as adult earners, which affects their household's eligibility for working for families' tax credits. Convener for the group Alan Johnson says children are deemed to be living above the poverty line only due to their own labour. Have you got two or three of your children actually contributing in income into your house um, simply because you have to. Well, it, doesn't, it makes your income look a whole lot higher. The group is calling for the number of hours students can work to be capped at 20 a week and to increase the minimum wage to the living wage. He says education is simply not a leveller anymore. Back at Otahuhu College, Fui Fatu says he's grateful to be back in the classroom and not at work. I really want to go into uni and because I want to break that cycle. A group of New Zealand-based Nguyen's, many of whom have been born and raised here, are planning a trip to the motherland later this year. The community group are especially looking forward to the young ones discovering their roots. Tiana Haxton meets with the Nguyen community over the weekend at a fundraiser. The New Wayan community group are hoping this trip will help their young ones connect with their cultural heritage. Youth representative Jordan Mokale says the visit will be a significant one for a number of members who have never stepped foot in New Way. There's a few of us that have been back home, but um, it's mostly a mixture. So people have been back and had some of their first time being there. A few of us coming from Palmy. We had a few New Wayans from Hawke's Bay, so we're all going as a group. Mokale says the trip was suggested by their church leader, who believed the return home would strengthen the youth's cultural identities. Our church is wanting to take our ministry back home to the island so we can um, enrich our, our young adults here and our youth so they're able to just learn and take home whatever they need. She says the community noticed their youth lacked understanding of cultural values and traditional practices. Yes, we all saw that there was a gap between our youth and our young adults that they weren't as aware of the cultural standards or the cultural customs, so in um, requiring for us to go back home to Niue. It was this realisation that led the community group to ensure the journey back home would happen.
On the upcoming trip, the young ones will be fully immersed in their new way and heritage. They want, they hope for us to just enrich and embed all these um, values and traditions and just learning about um, the new way of life, working in the plantation. Yeah. Mokalai says she is excited and looking forward to the trip back home in October this year. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rndi.com slash programs. We're also on Spotify, Apple and iHeartRadio. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, to Fasui Fua.